Hello. Hello. And welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. I'm afraid the waiting room at Accident and Emergency is full. Fortunately, the Phoenix has offered their basement as an overspill. You are unlikely to be seen within the four hours that government promises. But then, by now, you really ought to know not to trust promises made by governments. In better news, under a brand new and probably very short-lived initiative, the liars have been brought in to entertain you while you sit, injured, in pain, or just plain embarrassed. We'll have six stories to help distract from whatever ails you. Three in the first half, then an interval where you can compare rates of blood loss with your neighbours. Before we return with the infamous Lies League book quiz. And three more calamitous tales. We are not expecting a fire alarm drill, unlike last month. So if they do go off, it's probably for real. In that instance, please remain seated until I have safely made my way to street level. <laughs> After which, it's every man, woman and child for themselves. Please turn all mobile phones off or to silence. This is not because they might interfere with any vital medical equipment more because A&E selfies are in terribly bad taste. <laughs> and so, we shall begin. The first story of the evening will be His Shane McKenna Books by Tom Ryan, be read by Silas Hawkins. Tom grew up in south-west London and now lives just across town with his wife and dog. He writes in spare moments between working as an editor. His stories have appeared in Firewords Quarterly, Fractured West, 433, and elsewhere. Silas is continuing the family voiceover tradition. He is the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. Favourite voice credits include Somerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts for the Register. Silas! His Shane McKenna Voice by Tom Ryan. I'm getting old. The first time it really hit me, I was chasing down a long ball in the regular Friday night seven-a-side with a load of the lads from work. I had myself a ten-yard start on the bearded one from IT, no youngster himself, and he still got there in plenty of time to have a good think about how to pick out the runner in the box. And that was one nil. There was nothing at all I could do about it, and it hurt. I mean, I knew I'd lost a yard or two, but ten? When did that happen? If there's one thing I don't want to be, it's a liability. Danny came over for a captain's word. You're a liability, he said. 
I caught a couple of looks going over his way, like, like go easy on the old man looks. And they made it worse. Those looks were why I spent the next 15 minutes throwing my weight around. And that was why I jumped to challenge their elbowy centre forward at the next corner. And that was where I picked up the momentum to put in that unorthodox tackle on the goalpost with my teeth. (laughs) I remember the sound first. I had time to fire off a thought about that clang, kind of broken plumbing sound, before I realised that it was my teeth against the goalpost. And then a flare of pain like light bulbs popping on the backs of my eyes and wanting to chuck up. And then, and then there was a whole lot of blood. I put my front teeth through the skin under my front lip, it turned out, and followed through with my temple, and that, I can tell you, smarts. Danny got us in a taxi and gave me his old Ajax shirt to bleed into, and the A&E at St Mary's sewed me up and plugged the hole with gauze. Kept me in, too, as they decided it counted as a severe blow to the head. So I got a scan and had to lie down for a while. Mm. That's all kind of preamble, which makes this bit amble, I suppose. (laughs) Well, you'll have to picture me, groggy, half sitting up in bed and starting to notice the numbness going away which meant starting to feel as though I'd volunteered as a live model at the centre for the reenactment of medieval dentistry. Soon as uh, Danny had sloped off to catch penultimate orders, I started to feel sorry for myself, trying not to munch on the gorge with my newly Neanderthal mouth, trying to get the right angle to make my head stop swimming. You know what those wards are like. Low ceilings, fluorescent light everywhere you look, swooshing curtains, multiple TV channels on the go, and the smell of yesterday's vegetable kievs. (laughs) Six beds and five other people you don't want to get intimate with, all looking at you... As, you're, as though you're the one leaving the trail of MRSA on every surface you touch. I worked the buttons on my bed to get myself sitting up straight so I could guess what all the others had. Uh, the lad in the corner with the silent parents I had down to some kind of seizure. Uh, Hit replacement for the old boy with the uh, Malteser habit, obviously. Uh, now, the two either side of me both looked grey and worn out, so I had them down as recovering from surgery. Probably an ulcer, maybe a ruptured appendix. And then, the ugly one in the corner with the skinny girlfriend with the straight-across fringe. 
Now, I didn't get as far as an uneducated guess because there was something familiar about it. The body language, as he pointed and jabbed at the girl when she was slow to change the TV channel. His scowl. His laugh, too. I thought. I knew that laugh. The same every time, like canned laughter. <laughs> when the girlfriend squeezed his hand and left, I got a good look at him. Red eyes in reddening skin, heavy frown lines going on. Thinking hard, I worked through the files for faces and laughs and scowls and potato shaped heads. <laughs> I couldn't place him there. Where was he from? Oh, it was a long night. The duty nurse kept shuffling by to tend to the old boy who was having a rough time of it. Between his whimpering, my head, and her heavy movements as she played with the nightlight and doled out sips of water, it was hard to get to sleep. When I was awake... I thought about the potato head man, trying out random combinations of names to jog my memory. Warren Breen. Nathaniel Hallady. Phil de Susan. When I had got to Werner von Spitz, I knew it hadn't worked. Sleep. Awake. Sleep. Awake! Repeat until late morning. Danny came in for early visiting at about 11, which was good of him. I was still waiting for the all clear from the scan, so I had butterflies every time the door buzzed to open, thinking the doctors would in to be, begin to, to tell me I was dying. You didn't have to visit, I said, muffled through the gauze. So, not sounding too shaky. Well, I was on my way to town, he said, which we both knew was a lie. I appreciated the friendly face, and his bringing me tea to drink, or a straw. I slurped at that, spilled some, but not too much. When that was done, I beckoned him over to whisper in his ear, Look! I said, the one in the corner bed. I know him from somewhere. He's not for work, is he? Yeah, don't think so, said Dan. Another job, maybe? Football? School? Fuck, I said. It's Shane McKenna. I shivered a completely involuntary shiver. Shane McKenna, the official nutter at school. The boy who set fire to my chemistry homework and extorted my lunch money in design and technology <laughs> by threatening to slice into my eyelid with a craft knife. Shane McKenna, I said, made the first couple of years of secondary school the worst years of my life. I told Danny about the time Shane McKenna made me pay for the honour of shining his shoes. The dog shit smeared on my locker door every day of O-level mocks. My bag of library books ending up on the roof of the gym block. 
and him telling the first girl I fell for that I'd come out in P.E. <laughs> well, said Danny, now's your chance to say something to him. What's he going to do? I nodded. When Danny had left, I watched Shane McKenna. It took my mind off things. When the doctors arrived, I was half distracted by Shane McKenna demanding the service gracelessly from the nurses the moment his girl had left the room. Shane McKenna behaviour, I thought, as the young Irish nurse cleaned up his mess. Shane McKenna didn't thank her. Shane McKenna didn't thank anyone. He scowled, he complained, made snide remarks in his Shane McKenna voice. The voice was just the same, took me straight back to the shame of the toilet block behind the huts. Sized him up, propped up in his bed, projecting Shane McKenna-ness. It looked like I was bigger than him now. Though, thinking about it, I was happy. I just needed to be brave. I'd say something. I wouldn't. I would! Later. Well, what better place to risk injury than in a hospital? (laughs) When the same nurse came over to explain how I could sign myself out, I gestured over to the Shane McKenna corner. (laughs) Him over there, eh? No manners, eh? I said. What's he got? None of your business, she said. I still thanked her. Twice. And she smiled as she pulled the curtain round the bed so I could change back into what was left of my football kit. I didn't look too dignified. The shirt looked like a butcher's apron. When I had my bag packed, I took a deep breath and walked over to Shane McKenna. Look, I said, I want you to hear this. Now don't pretend you don't remember me, Shane McKenna. I want you to remember everything you did to me at school. Everything you said and all the pain you caused me. I want you to remember that despite all that, I wish you well when you were sick. I hope you get better soon. And I can say that because I'm not a vindictive fuck like you! (laughs) I can forgive and I can move on. And that's why I'm better than you. (laughs) Shane McKenna looked at me. That's not my name, he said. I hit him with a devastating comeback. Oh. I grabbed his wrist and got a look at his wristband. Not Shane McKenna. Not Shane McKenna pulled away. Leave me alone, you nutter, he said, hitting a call button. When the Irish nurse came striding over, I explained. I 
Well, I, I, I tried to explain at least, and, and, and she agreed not to call security if I left now and promised to leave the patients alone. <laughs> at work on Monday, Danny asked me how it went. <laughs> it, it wasn't him, I said. Ah, oh, he said. Well, probably for the best. He'd made me coffee. The sun was streaming across the big atrium, and my stitches weren't hurting. Well, my head still hurt, and I had a, a look or two from passers-by, but it was good to be back somewhere I knew I was useful. Just watching the world go by. I knew, too, that I'd meant what I'd said to the man who wasn't Shane McKenna. <laughs> now, 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 ten years ago, I'd have been too scared to talk to him, and five years ago, I would have hit and run, giving him a, a broadside of anger, and then got out of there. So there was a kind of dignity in there, somewhere, underneath the indignity. And that, I told Danny, is what getting older's all about. medical writer and the author of a book series for children called All the Pieces. He studied medicine in Bristol and works as a hospital doctor specialising in liver diseases. He lives in London. Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons, Tony Bell has performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company Propeller, playing Bottom, Feste, Autolycus and Tranny. TV includes Coronation Street, Holby City, Midsummer Murders, EastEnders, and The Bill. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony! Problem Child by Phil Berry. I was one of the lucky ones. In time, were recruited, my licence was clean, my knowledge of national highways was impeccable. As I charged through the rain and pushed my van to the limit of the law, I considered my fortune. To carry life, or the chance for life, was a privilege. Livers, kidneys, the heart once. A team of surgeons awaited my arrival, and a dying person relied on my concentration. When I drove for Blue Line, I carried parcels, brief fancies for the click-happy, 
If I'd veered off the motorway, turned somersaults across the carriageway, littered packages along 300 acres of tarmac, who would have cared, really? Not Helen or Susie. Not now. But this job, this job actually meant something. I developed a need to know who the organs were for. With a name, I could visualise the recipient, a picture based on the scantiest of information, the sketch of a life. I learned about their medical conditions too, cirrhosis, renal failure, cardiomyopathy. Call me sinister, but it motivated me. Then on an otherwise unremarkable day, I took a cool box from a transplant coordinator in Leicester. I watched her finish the paperwork, reading the name of the patient upside down. Alicia Michaels, 17 years old. It had to be. As I drove to London, I thought about Susie, my daughter, two years older than this Alicia. I thought about the day I found out Blue Line had finally gone under by text from a middle manager on Christmas Day, one hour before Helen, my ex-wife, was due to drop our daughter Susie off. That was our arrangement. Breakfast and uh, stocking with mum, turkey with me, back to mum's in time for the feature film. I'd have preferred the whole of Boxing Day, but Susie wanted to split it. Fine by me, and loyal of her. The redundancy text pinged in, and I had to decide what to do. If I didn't tell Susie, the day would be a travesty. If I did tell her, the day would be ruined. I bottled it. I decided our happiness should be preserved for that day, and I told her on Boxing Day instead. I rang Helen and pretended I'd only just received a text. I know, she said. We saw it on the news when Susie got back from yours. Then she brought Susie onto the phone and muttered, Your dad's got something to say to you. We'd known for a while that Blue Line was a problem child, that it had been eating money. It was sold for a pound to a group of venture capitalists headed by David Michaels. He wasn't our boss, but he pulled our boss's strings. This guy was a phenomenon, a turnaround king. Grey hair, military cut like an American general. He came on a visit. I, along with four other drivers, were selected to meet him. With his customary frankness, he didn't pretend to us that the future was guaranteed. We had one year to generate black numbers. He joined us in the canteen. I I became uncomfortable for him. (laughs) I wasn't sure, but I thought he must be desperate to go. Nevertheless, he queued up, he bought us coffees, and he sat down on a low couch with his collar open and his legs spread in a confident at-home way. A colleague filled in the silence. Any kids, Mr. Michaels? Three, he said in that soft Welsh accent that profile writers had remarked. What sort? Two girls, one lad. How old? Fifteen, the oldest. Girls are trouble, I joked, interjecting. He looked at me carefully, and his focus shifted to a faraway place. Yes, yes, they, they can be. I thought nothing more of this as we drained our coffees too quickly and moved out into the main depot. David Michaels had seen enough. Paracetamol is often the first thing these kids find. A disastrous choice, I now know. It works slowly, giving you enough time to regret the action, to understand what's happening as the toxins accumulate. The toxins, ammonia mostly, make the brain swell. 
The edges of the brain are crushed, inhibiting the blood supply, and the brain stem, seat of all our basic functions, is squeezed down through the hole at the base of the skull. Only one thing can cure this, a new liver. If one isn't found in time, most patients will die. With a new liver, 85% will survive. It didn't take me long on my smartphone to confirm that Alicia Michaels was indeed David Michaels' daughter. The age was right, the destination made sense. I was transporting her only chance for life. The road took me uh, to London, over the Thames. This natural barrier caused me to pause dangerously. I flicked the indicator, I turned left at Vauxhall Bridge onto the embankment. It was two o'clock in the morning. I knew the precise spot. A small public garden faces the river just over the road from the old Tate. We came here as a happier family when Susie was just four. After seeing the Turners, we strolled along and discovered it. We chased Susie around the benches and watched an amphibious craft full of tourists plunge into the water from the opposite bank. Then, 12 years later, we came again, just Susie and I. She was doing a project on some surrealist. Afterwards, we walked across to the garden. I smiled in nostalgic remembrance. So she had no recollection. We talked about art her true love and then we argued I wanted her to study something useful in fact I insisted but she won in the end I agreed to help fund her if she was good enough to get an offer from somewhere like St Martin's and she did but the dream faded when Blue Line went under in that uncompensated year it took me to find the new job at in time she was forced to reconsider her future the thought of loans, of poverty, of 30 uh, grand in debt terrified her. She saw and accepted the need for a more prosaic and more responsible life. So she left home and took a job that would never recognise her artistic talent. She never complained, but she despised me for it. And because she despised me, she didn't come to me in her hour of need. We'd always understood each other, Susie and I. I could, I could read her feelings, reflect them back to her. I, I led her through the swings of adolescence. I conf comforted her in the days of dejection. Not Helen, me, her father. But now, insulated from me by an unspoken sense of disappointment, trapped in a bedsit on the edge of a damp town, miles from home, she grew frustrated and depressed. She didn't dare ask me for help. She knew I had nothing to give. An old friend came to see her one who had gone to art college. It was too much. That same evening, Susie tried to kill herself. Not with pills, but with a blade. Not to the wrist, but to the neck. She meant it. The neighbour downstairs called the police, having heard wild thumps as Susie began to careen around the bathroom, the blood draining from her. She was in hospital for six weeks. Helen wouldn't let me see her. And then, just as she was discharged... I got the job within time. I spent every day and night on the road, earning all I could, trying to make it up to her. But it was too late. Susie's ambition had withered. The blade had cut me from her for good. The relationship was dead. When terrible things happen, we, we look for someone to blame. Fate, circumstance, God. That awful Christmas had been the start of it. If I hadn't lost my job with Blue Line, if I hadn't had to lie... If I hadn't to work, had to work all hours at in time, I knew who'd taken my daughter away from me. David Michaels. 
The river lapped at the embankment ice. I sucked the fresh night air. Then, in a series of smooth, committed motions, I lifted the cool box out of the van. I carried it across the road to the river, and I placed it on the broad wall. It pivoted on the rounded top of grey stone. When I took my hand away, it wobbled. The current was running left to right from the city to the sea. Would the white tube catch on the arch of a bridge, snag on a barge, circle calmly on an infinite eddy or go the distance, this precious liver, this symbol of loss, decaying over time? Cars flitted behind me, the wind strengthened. I held the corner of the box and considered The transplant surgeon assesses a liver when it arrives. She judges its colour and strokes its surface for irregularities. If it looks like it might not wake up after it's been stitched in, she rejects it. That's what Michaels does with his companies. If he doesn't believe they'll thrive, he wrinkles his nose and he moves on. That's his right. But unlike the surgeon, who is mindful that the organ represents a tragedy... Michaels drops his money-guzzling problem child in a manner and at a time that suits him with little thought of the consequences. Can he have any conception of employees as people, as breadwinners, as role models, as soulmates, as fathers? This man who cut the funds a day before Christmas, a day when families are under strain, and indulge in fantasy. I tilted the box. I heard again Helen's icy tone when she rang to inform me that Susie's suicide attempt had occurred. According to her, it was all because I'd withdrawn my promise of support and shattered Susie's dreams. I listened, but all I could think about was my girl curled up on the bathroom floor in a pool of blood Helen droned on and on, hammering shards of blame into my breast where they would melt over a lifetime into black guilt. All my fault. All my fault. The cool box slipped a little under my hand. Not my fault. His. The injury would be great. Hurt for hurt. Loss for loss the injury would be equal. Charlie, the transplant coordinator, was waiting for me at the side entrance. She was rubbing her eyes. I had done the liver run to London countless times. She recognised me. No problem, she asked. No, no. Smooth run. She signed the form and took the box to the surgeon. I entered the hospital building. At the foot of a stone stairwell, I saw a sign, liver unit, third floor. I ascended and looked along the corridor. Other signs suspended from the ceiling indicated wards, labs, offices. Intensive care. I walked purposefully towards it, trying to look as though I belonged. The double door was closed, I nudged it, but it was locked. Visitors had to press the buzzer and state their connection with the patient. The glass in the doors was frosted. But as I pressed an eye, the glass brightened. 
Someone was leaving. Two blurred forms approached and an arm reached out to press the exit button. I stepped back hastily. The doors opened. David Michaels. Same severe hairstyle. Winter tan. Walked out with his wife. Both looked at me. They assumed I was a relative of another patient, but my glance was weightier than was natural to a meeting without meaning. He held my gaze as they turned to walk down the corridor. Can I help you? he asked, a born leader, assertive even at this time. No, no, I, I, I was, uh, I, I'm just the driver, the transplants, the driver. You do a wonderful job, he murmured. What had I expected him to say? Thank you? What did I want to tell him? I don't know, I still don't. His wife looked across at him. Her expression pained, then gently tugged him away. They carried on up the corridor while I stood watching. My mouth bursting with words that would forever remain unsaid. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be Miscellaneous Spooky Weird by Liam Hogan, be read by Carrie Cohen. <coughs> Liam is a liar of long standing and was recently a finalist in SciFest LA's Roswell Award, where he was up against Grandma's sex robot and lost. <laughs> Carrie's recent theatre includes Miss Tarleton in Shaw's Missalites, Hetty in Gelt, Mifamwi in Hula Hoops Where My Downfall, Grace in Mouthplay, which is scheduled to be filmed. In June, she read poetry at the Serpentine Gallery. Carrie! Miscellaneous Spooky, Weird, by Liam Hogan. Emergency, which service? This is what you'll hear if you're unfortunate enough to need to call 999. There are, of course, many more than three options. The AA, the car breakdown company, not Alcoholics Anonymous, once claimed it was the nation's fourth emergency service. But that was just self-serving, aggrandizing claptrap. After police, fire and ambulance come other services you might know to ask for by name. The Coast Guards, Mountain Rescue, Bomb Disposal and the like. And then there are those you probably won't. It's a dispatch operator's job to forward you on to the appropriate people, working from a list which is rather longer than you would suppose. <clears throat> there are departments that the government, Freedom of Information Act or not, will point blank deny exist until that one time they are needed. Some are the stuff of nightmares, cures as terrible as the disease, only to be contacted in the direst apocalyptic emergencies. 
the very bottom of the list, there's Mavis Ethelwright. <laughs> well, not by name. She's listed as miscellaneous, spooky, weird. But from Land's End to John O'Groats, there is only one phone that will ring if that call is made. And it's sitting on a lace doily on a small occasional table in a semi-detached on the edges of Wardenstone. There's a reason that Mavis lives there, and a reason so much of the Hackney marshes will never be built on, and the two might be connected. But that's for another story. Mavis was in her favourite armchair when the red Bakelite telephone rang. It rang seven times just long enough for her to finish her cup of tea before she reached out and picked up the handset. Yes, dear, she answered. Um, is that... The emergency dispatcher warbled. This is Mavis Everwright. Ah, I think I have the wrong... Oh, <laughs> I don't think so, dear, Mavis said, peering at the leaves at the bottom of her teacup. I don't think you have the wrong number at all. Miscellaneous, spooky, weird, does not have official transportation. So, after taking the particulars from the still wary dispatch, Mavis rang for a taxi. Miscellaneous, spooky, weird, does not as a general rule require immediate response. Sometime before the next Tuesday is what appears on her rather reluctantly filled out service level agreement. She gathered her things, and after performing a quick ward to protect her home, she went out the front door and sat on a small garden bench to wait for her ride. All right, my best, the taxi driver said as he drew up. Oh, yes, thank you, Alan. Alan hopped out of the cab and swung open the back door. The front, I think, Alan, she said. He drew in a sharp breath. That's serious? I'm afraid so, Mavis said. I'll be wanting to see where we're going. Right-o. He wasted no further time, nearly breaking into a run as he rounded the taxi and retook his seat. Waiter. Mavis said, squinting at an old iron nail dangling from a piece of yarn. Mavis Ethelwright is England's only official witch. That England's other witches tend to keep a rather lower profile has a lot to do with the oldest on that list of emergency services, a hangover from the 16th century and never fully disbanded. Mavis calls them the Drown'em and Burn'em Brigade. And a number of her spells and incantations have more to do with protecting herself from them than the evil power that lurks deep in the marshes. Her destination became obvious after only a couple of minutes' drive. An ominous black cloud roiled in the otherwise blue sky. That it was centred over an unremarkable row of terrace houses did little to lessen the chilling effect. As they grew to a halt on the opposite side of the road, 
Alan reached out to close the cab's window. No, said Mavis, putting the yarn and nail back into a large carpet bag. Let it in, Alan. Best I know about as much about it as possible. The clouds shade enveloped them. A gloomy darkness fell, and the street lamps fizzled briefly on, and then, just as quickly, faded back into the black. The amber light sucked dry by smoky tendrils. But Mavis wasn't looking up, or even down at the blue front door of number 16 as it squatted in the shadow of the glowering crowd. She was facing the other way, eyeing the rarest of mythical beasts, a working BT phone box. <laughs> she handed a thermos flask to Alan and rooted in her bag for a couple of extra cups. Three teas, please, Alan. One for you, you know how I like mine, and the third one with one... No, better make it two sugars. She cracked open the car door and shivered. You're sure this is your department, Amelish? Alan asked, his mockney accent slipping somewhat and showing a hint of his long-buried Armenian heritage. No, I don't suppose it is, but we're here now. Best make do. She edged her way carefully over to the phone booth. An advert for a meat inferno pizza hid the interior, but beneath the door there was a glimpse of black lace underskirt over a pair of scuffed DMs. Mavis pulled the kiosk door open. Are you all right, dear? she asked, as a pair of startled eyes peered up through charcoal eyeshadows streaked by tears. Oh! Jessica, isn't it? I guess it was you who phoned this in. The girl, her black hair shot through with purple, silver pentagram earrings swinging in their circular hoops, nodded, and slowly relaxed the knuckle-whitening grip she had around her knees. Come and have a nice cup of tea and tell me all about it. The telling didn't take long. Jessica huddled on the curb, the safe side of the taxi, as Mavis perched on a garden wall overlooking number 16, and Alan stood on the cab's runner, peering over the top. It was an accident, Jessica mumbled, head bowed. You mean, Mavis said, not unkindly, that you didn't expect it to work. The girl looked up through her fringe, her shoulders momentarily bunched. Well, at least your primary ward took. Primary ward? Oh, that's the thing that's holding it where it is, love. Alan helpfully chipped in. I fear it mayn't hold for much longer, Mavis said, as the double-glazed PVC windows pulsed. The front door let of that popped open, and something long and purple snaked through, tasting the air. 
Mavis pulled a yellowed candle stuff from her cavernous bag. Well, she had half a dozen Ikea tea lights. That would have done just as well, but then she did have an audience. <laughs> Jessica, my dear, I'm going to need something from you. Jessica nodded defeatedly and offered up her arm, a fresh white bandage scrappily tied and edged with red. Mavis shook her head. No, not that, dear. Your teacup, please. I need to see which way it will break. After peering intently at the pattern of leaves at the bottom of the cup, Mavis consulted her iPad. (laughs) Ever since the British Library had digitised their occult section, she had been saved lugging around half a dozen hefty books. But such easy access was a mixed blessing. Although most of the scanned content was palpable nonsense, there were, scattered amongst the alchemical instructions and obtuse law, the occasional page of true power. And so, somewhere in the heart of number 16 sat Jessica's smartphone, the screen locked onto a page from a dusty French grimoire, a summoning spell. Mavis lit the candle, sprinkled a few herbs around the base, and chanted under her breath. For a moment, the fabric of the stone-clad terrace seemed to disintegrate, each brick, each slate, floating free of its neighbour, and, through the gaps, the three of them caught glimpse of something rising up on squat, powerful legs. Through the roof, a pair of torn reptilian wings flexed, powerful legs, blood red, and ate. Possibly a lot more tentacles rise in front of a, a hidden head, rippling hungrily towards them. It was slipping its bounds, shaking itself free, both of the physical restraints, the bricks, the mortar, the cavity wall installation, and also of the magical ward that Jessica had invoked in its summoning. Mavis reached out and with her bare fingers snuffed the candle. There was a noise, not unlike that of an elephant, minus the bones, dropped from a great height directly onto the hard concrete floor of the Tate Modern's turbine hall. (laughs) Mavis ducked behind the body of the cab as a, a couple of tons of calamari and dragon's blood splattered across the road. <laughs> and the stench of the grave passed over them. The chill, dank air lifted and sunlight flooded blindingly back as though a total eclipse had finished way before it was due. In the near distance, a bird nervously started up its song only to peter out into embarrassed silence when it realised it was singing solo. (laughs) May I borrow your phone, Alan? Mavis asked. Alan stood rooted to the spot, 
something purple dripping from his cheek. <laughs> Until she asked again, and silently he handed it over. She tapped away quickly, and immediately a voice asked, Emergency, which service? Eldritch cleanup, please, Mabel said. Eldritch what? It's on the list, dear. Authorization code, Howard Phillips. Better get me an environmental disaster squad as well, she said, eyeing the splattered tentacles and <laughs> ectoplasmic goo. And immediate blackout, immediate blackout squad, stat. What happens now? Jessica asked, her voice small. Mavis looked up at the gaping hole in the roof as a section of chimney plummeted into the smoking remains. Normally we go down the gas leak route. Any strange sightings are attributed to oxygen deprivation. Nah, I mean, to me? Mavis peered over the top of her glasses. Jessica stood pale, morose, currently rather sticky, although the taxi and Alan had borne the brunt. And yet this curiously attired slip of a girl had summoned a real stinker of a class two minor deity, with little more than a blood offering and a high-resolution smartphone. <laughs> She'd be dead if her ward hadn't held. The point was, it had, but just long enough anyway. Ever thought of being an apprentice, Mavis said. <laughs> ah, on the telly, Jessica said. <laughs> <laughs> Defiant and all that, Mavis smiled. Yes, something like that. Thank you, Karen. The wail of sirens brings the first half to a crashing halt. Fortunately, the bar is open, although it is for medicinal purposes only. You have 20 minutes to rehydrate. Jennifer is an American author and journalist living in Bolivia. Her first book, The Woman Who Fell From The Sky, is a memoir about running the Yemen Observer newspaper in Sanaa. Her novel, The Ambassador's Wife, is published by Doubleday. Her work has appeared in Vogue UK, World Policy Journal, and The Washington Times. <coughs> Louisa is, Lies, is a Liars League regular. Her recent voiceover work includes The Vine in 1914, Strand on BBC Radio 2, Seducing Harry Enfield on a radio ad, Guiding Visitors Around Stockholm Moderna, Moderna Musette, and giving instructions inside an MRI scanner. <laughs> Louisa! Fault Lines by Jennifer Stile. She has no memory of the accident itself. She remembers flicking her left turn signal and 
glancing in her rearview mirror. And then nothing, until she found herself in a stopped car, sideways at the edge of the road to Lake Titicaca. I must get my daughter out, she thought. But even as this flashed through her mind, she saw her husband had already freed their four-year-old from the car seat and was carrying her quickly across a field. She watched them for a moment, their receding backs. Heart staggering, she pushed at the door, which stuck. Don't damage the car by forcing it, she thought. The car was already damaged beyond repair, but she did not know that until much later. She stared at the door. There was no glass in her driver's side window. She wondered why. Her husband and daughter were far away now, still moving. Their faces were turned from her. Panicking, she finally forced the door and flung herself after them. Not until she stepped out onto the dried grass did she notice the smoking minibus. It had rolled over several times and was still regurgitating screaming passengers from onto the shoulder of the road. Bolivians don't wear seatbelts. Parents drive with babies on their laps and minibus drivers rip the belts from their seats so they can squeeze in more passengers. Foreigners tend to follow the laws of their home countries, which is why she and her family were relatively unhurt. Only when she reached them and lifted an arm to touch her daughter's dark hair to make sure of her wholeness, did she see the blood on her own hand. Shards of glass hung to her sweater and hair. She was bleeding from everywhere, but superficially. She did not feel it. What she felt was her head. It suddenly occurred to her why there was no glass in her window. Her daughter was crying. There's a boy bleeding, she said, pointing back toward the minibus. She is always taken on the pain of those around her. He'll be okay, she answered, as if she could make it so. She turned to her husband, trembling. Was it my fault? No, he told her firmly. Tell me the truth. I, I couldn't bear it if it was my fault. It was not your fault, he said again, and walked off to find the police. The police found her first. You were the driver? They asked. Holding tightly to her daughter's hand, she nodded. So this was your fault? No, she began. Come with us. The policeman gestured towards his car. Her daughter clung to her leg. Where are you taking my mummy? Her husband reappeared. No one is taking your mother anywhere, he turned to the police. First of all, you can't arrest her because we're diplomats. Second of all, she needs to get to a hospital. The policeman did not know what diplomats were. He conferred with his colleague who shrugged his shoulders. They were in a small town, more than three hours from La Paz. They'd probably let her go if she offered a bribe. But she couldn't do that even had she wanted to, which she did not. It was important to her to be legitimately cleared of guilt, if there was any legitimacy in a country with a thoroughly corrupted judicial system. 
Her husband produced their diplomatic IDs, made phone calls and arranged for a car to fetch them. The police disappeared with her driving licence. She sat down on the ground to hide her shaking legs from her daughter and opened a book. Though her hands rattled the pages and her teeth chattered as she read, her daughter made no comment. She listened as though the words could save her. This was months ago. All of the minibus passengers survived and got better. They sued their driver. It really hadn't been her fault. She reported her license stolen and got a new one. Her daughter slept in her bed that night and every night for two months. At school, she was chastised for shoving other children. She wasn't allowed to dance in her year-end ballet pageant because she refused to do the steps properly. But three months later, she too got better. She made friends in her class and slept through the night. She quit ballet and took up piano. She herself is better now, except for the tinnitus, which doctors say she will keep. She is better, except for her marriage, which she won't. Her husband only did exactly what she would have done, what she would have wanted him to do. She would have said... Had she been conscious, take her and get as far away as possible, fast. Yet she cannot forgive him. She keeps seeing the two of them, walking swiftly away, leaving her trapped. It might be different if he had once looked back. Just once. Comma Coma by Will Adam. We read by Adam Diggle. Will has lived in London for the past four years. He's been published in small literary journals, but this is his first time his work has been read by an actor. Hopefully by an actor who has acted like a writer reading a story before. <laughs> Adam graduated from Liverpool Institute for the Performing Arts in 2009. Since then, he's mainly worked in theatre and voiceover. Credits include Nick Bottom in A Midsummer's Night Dream, Lancelot in The Merchant of Venice, Lenny Small in Of Mice and Men, and Happy Lonely in Death of a Salesman. Adam! <laughs> Tonacoma by Will Adam. The last movie I saw prior to an air conditioner falling on my head was Goodwill Hunting. It's the first thing I think of as I wake from my coma. How about them apples? I'm in a familiar place, my childhood bedroom. There are three machines to my left, a ventilator, a heart monitor, and a drip feed machine. I lift a hand and study my wispy skin, bulging veins, and wimpy forearms. Make a fist... Hurts. Try to snap. Silence. I yell, but only a whisper escapes, and I collapse back into sleep. When I wake up again, Mom is beside me. 
She's singing Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. <laughs> a, a top ten hit in 1997. She sees me stir, stops, gasps for Dad to come look, and then starts to cry. Dad comes in, gives Mom a big hug, pats my head, kisses me hard on the lips, and says, Did you have a good nap? Dad combs his hair now from front to back instead of left to right. He moves deliberately with concentration. Mom is using every button available to her and accessorizes herself with ornamental tigers and butterflies assembled from rhinestones and set in gold-flavored metal. When I wake again, Mom and Dad are still just as happy as before. They tell me what year it is, who the president is. Still? No. Dad answers. His son. Mom brings soup. Dad spoons it in. He reads from a pamphlet and takes me through what I should expect in the next couple of months. Apparently, I'll have trouble walking because I haven't used anything except for my lungs. And I may be suicidal after trying and failing to do things that I used to do. Simple things like writing my name or shaving. They, they ask me who they are, to name them, to recall my childhood cat's name, the year I went to state in tennis. I can tell from their reaction that I'm getting the answers correct, but I'm not so sure myself. It's reflex. Good sign. Word spreads to friends, family, neighbors, and a woman from the local newspaper. They all ask, how do you feel? I tell them, arrested? It's my only answer. I, I can't describe for them the thawed movements and latent emotions. I'm forgiven for not being myself, whoever that used to be. Everything I've ever done or said to people is forgiven. I'm appreciated as life is after it's almost taken. As life is by people who've done everything to preserve it, to protect it, will it back from the brink. After three weeks walking the stairs and hallways inside the house a house my parents would have sold five years ago if it hadn't been for my accident, I venture outside. I take a walk with Dad and ask him how they afforded to care for me for so long. I just kept working. He said as if it's no big deal. But you hated your job. Every day I got to work and keep you alive for another day. I'm not sure how to repay or even accept a gift like that. So I don't. I resent it instead. I'm a time traveler who forgot to add the zero to the eight. <laughs> the cars look updated, but not completely new. Houses now stand on once empty lots, and buildings stand where the houses once stood. But it's all very manageable. Small towns don't change much in a decade. I tell him I'm angry for being 39, and he says he thought I would be. <laughs> I ask him if he's angry at anything. I was angry right until you woke up. It's like when you would stay out past curfew. I'd be angry you know, for letting it happen, letting you get away with it, letting you hurt yourself. But I'd be flooded with relief when you walked through the door intact. Drunk, but intact. 
I was drunk when the air conditioner hit me, too. A widely known fact that goes unmentioned now. In fact, it's been willfully ignored to make the miracle more pure. We were having a party, Anna and I, to welcome others to our co-owned apartment. I wasn't positive I wanted to move in with her, but it seemed easier to act out the next expected step than to disrupt anticipations. Someone leaned against the air conditioner. I was put downstairs putting trash in the recycling bin. I didn't fasten to the window properly because I was rushed. A five-minute job cost me eight years. It compressed three of my vertebrae and shrunk my height by an inch and a centimeter. Anna's flying in to see me today. She's been living in our place the whole time since the accident, waiting there in her, in her own coma, slowing life to a sequence, sequence of repetitious movements. We recognize each other, hesitate, and then tentatively approach, like dogs sniffing one another before deciding whether or not to fight. I've tried to sit out in the sun and eat fruit so I don't look sickly. <laughs> she gives me a weak hug, afraid that she'll crack something. She's grown her hair out, colored it, and gained weight. We look like Laurel and Hardy now. A fear of mine before we moved in together was what she'd be like, look like, in a few years. She had a problem with motivation, and she's done nothing besides exist since then. I also worried that she gained weight after a child. Here she is, fat and childless. I mean, there were people that I could go eight years without seeing and not have a problem picking up right where we left off. Of course, that assumes that you talk to them every now and again, hear things about them, see a picture of them, get a Christmas card from them. A coma is eight years of nothing, followed by an awkward conversation that usually begins, so, this is awkward. It's quickly retracted and stomped upon. Then I listen to everything they've been up to. All try to downplay it, as though nothing has happened that's really worth recapping. I have nothing to contribute besides blank stares and expired questions. You, you still have the cat? I asked Anna, briefly forgetting his name. Whopper? No, she died. When? Last week. <laughs> Oh, I say, taken aback by the recentness and Anna's casualness. Dad drives us back from the airport in a Chevy Aztec, the most futuristic car in six years old that I've ever ridden in. Anna and Dad have become good friends over the years, and she spends half her time talking loudly to him from the back seat. I interject every now and again with silly questions, and their answers give way too much background. Mostly, I stare out of the back window and make a fist in frustration. In the coma, I wasn't in control of my body, but my mind must have been free. Now, my body is weak but free, and my head is in the past. We're living a confused mixture of infancy, adolescence, and old age. I'm expected to go back with Anna to Chicago. I should have faked memory loss when mum and dad first started asking me the questions. <laughs> now, a coma patient with amnesia, 
That's where you want to be. <laughs> we pull up to the house, and there are 50 cars parked on the street. I look over, and Anna is smiling, hopeful of its infectiousness. Don't sweat it, Bonds. Dad says, Bonds is his nickname for me. It's more for us than for you. We just wanted to get all the storytelling and gossip and rumors out of the way. Small town and all. No one expects you to act a certain way. Just say hi and then sneak off with Anna if you want. They don't shout, surprise, when I walk in. Afraid my lightly used heart couldn't take the string. Uh, it gets quiet and then cranks slowly back up the lane. <laughs> they welcome me as if welcoming home a baby who had complications in the hospital. The parents are congratulated, not me. Eyes examine me for signs of permanent damage. I make myself a drink and get drunk in three gulps. After one lap of the party, I find Anna and take her upstairs. The sexiness is left her. She undresses me, kisses me, puts me in a bed, and then crawls in beside me with her clothes on. I manage, with a little help from her, to get her pants down to her knees and shirt unbuttoned and pulled to the side. I lift the bra over her breasts and I leave it there. I've undressed her exactly three quarters of the way. I'm surprised I'm hard. I kiss her, starting at the mouth and ending at her inner thigh. I come back up and look into her frightened expression. What's wrong? I ask. Instead of telling me, she says, I'm afraid someone's going to walk in. In the morning, I talk to mom and dad about my options. Is there any insurance money or extra cash lying around? They laugh. Is there anyone I could stay with or learn a new trade from? Not really. Graduate school is a possibility full of loans I'd be paying off to my 50s. My previous job as a public relations account executive isn't one I'd want to resume. Anna chimes in with her two cents every time we speak of a new direction for my life. One cent for moving back to Chicago, the other for living with her. It's not what she wants anymore. It's what she expects. It's what she's planned. I let Anna go back to Chicago by herself. I tell her I need some time before I jump back into life. I want to get reacquainted with the world. For me, that means crashing on a friend's couch in Kansas City, another in Reno, a futon in Tampa, and a spare bed in Pittsburgh until I've seen enough, or my friends have seen enough of me. I work a variety of jobs, uh, political campaign envelope stuffer, fantasy restaurant parking valet, pool cleaner, and assembly line quality control checker, inspector number 35, in the same order of towns I lived in. I make enough to survive on and send home some for dad's drained retirement fund. After Pittsburgh, I drive around the country, visiting places I've never wanted to go, drinking at bars at night, meeting people who don't know anything about me, sleeping in cars. After the money runs out, I call Anna and I tell her, I'm ready to move to Chicago. And she seems as satisfied as a kid who saved up her money for a certain thing, maybe a bike, only to have outgrown its allure by the time she has enough to actually buy it. But she gets it anyway, just to keep everyone proud of her fortitude. I move back, and it's as if I never left, minus the gap in the photo album. And much like my childhood home, 
Yeah. Place hasn't changed. I summoned my last thoughts before the coma. I wanted to get a glimpse of our future together. Now here I am, enshrined inside of it. Only problem is it came too fast. And I'm having a sudden realization. One I wouldn't have made if it had crept up slowly over eight years. She's made her apartment, her life, a museum to me, to us, for us. But just as before, it's devoid of a contribution from me. These are her memories of us. <laughs> if I were outside of me, I'd think that a coma would make me happy just to be alive, but I am ashamed of it. This gift of life I constantly have to write a thank you note to. But I settle in Chicago, and I live the life I promised, and wait for the next awakening. Thank you, Adam. Who's David? No, it's not that. And before the final um, story of the evening, some notices, which normally I'd have written down here, but someone's removed them from the book. But I think I remember ish, and they're written down partly on the program. Um, Our next event is Lock and Key on the 8th of September. Uh, Do come along for that. The uh, next open theme, I believe, is Signs and Omens, Katie? It is, yes. Signs and Omens for our Halloween special, so scary stories on that theme. If you want to know any of the details of submitting, do check the website. There's also loads of old videos and texts and recordings from previous events. And such. Vintage videos. Vintage. Vintage. And so, the final story of the evening will be Fool's Leap by Alan Graham read by David Milton Alan studied creative writing and economics at UEA and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most (laughs) he currently lives and works in London David is an actor and playwright and was a founding member of Liars League his stories Worm's Feast and Red were performed here and appeared in Arachne Press anthologies London Lies and Weird Lies. Recently, his play The Flood was produced at the Hope Theatre Islington and his short plays Second Skin and Either Or were performed at Theatre 503. David! Fool's Leap by Alan Graham. Lights, camera, and... I'm sorry, am I really expected to jump that? Cut! I mean, I don't want to be awkward, but the gap between these buildings is really rather large. (laughs) The director gets out of his chair and glares at me angrily from the top of the opposite building. Although he doesn't need it to be heard, he yells back at me using his megaphone. Look! Buddy, this is a pivotal moment in the film. You are chasing after the hoodlums who have kidnapped the woman you love. 
Audiences will sit in awe as you defy death itself to rescue her. Cinematically, I can't argue with this. It will make rather an impressive scene. But the more I look at it, the more it seems obvious to me that there is no way I can jump the required distance. I was just wondering. I begin trying to sound as constructive as I possibly can. Whether you might get someone else to dress up to look just like me and maybe he could do the jump. The director seems to mutter something to himself that I couldn't hear from my rooftop. Then he puts the megaphone back to his mouth. See, buddy, that doesn't work. Audiences can spot that it's someone else. Besides, we want the cinema goers to really see fear in the actor's face. (laughs) And you're giving us great fear. (laughs) I nod respectfully to accept the praise as everyone begins to get ready again. Near me, the piano man hired to create the right mood music on the shoot begins playing an appropriately foreboding refrain. Lights! Camera! And do you think we might do it without the music? Cut! I'm honestly not trying to be awkward, but can't we leave all that to the good musicians in all the theatres? These ominous sounds of impending peril, well, they're not really helping me get ready for the leap. (laughs) I can't quite make out the eyes of the director, but I'm pretty sure they roll skyward. (laughs) Sure. Sure, we'll go without the music. Thanks awfully. I smile. Everything cranks up again. Lights. Camera. And action! At this, I begin running to the edge of the building, my limbs surging with energy, as if ready for a triumphant leap of supreme athleticism. And then I notice a coin lying on the rooftop. Hey, everybody! Look, I found a nickel! I stop to pick it up and hold it so all the crew can see. This belong to anyone by any chance? You stupid, limey, pansy ass wimp! The director fumes. He hasn't bothered with the megaphone this time. <laughs> Curiously, I hear him better than ever. Well, there's no need for that, I reply. If I had lost a nickel, I would be jolly grateful if someone had the decency to point out that they'd found it. The director turns to a couple of members of his technical crew. I watch them conferring in a small huddle. I begin hoping that they are agreeing a last-minute script rewrite that would see the fair maiden rescued by an act of more reasonable bravery. I try to casually put one hand in my trouser pocket to hide the fact that I have my fingers crossed. Hey, Charlie, what's the holdup? The leading lady appears on the opposite rooftop, cigarette dangling from her mouth and a Retinue of makeup artists ensuring her looks remain immaculate. I got a big date this evening with a wealthy widower, and I ain't gonna be late. It's the limey, the director growls. Coward won't jump. This is seemingly important enough news for her to take the fag from her lips. 
What? Her face halves in size as it scrunches up in angry frustration. Hey, little Lord Fauntleroy! Hello. <laughs> I respond awkwardly. Just shoot the damn scene. I begin trying to draw her attention to the fact that the distance between the rooftop I am standing on and the rooftop that she and most of the crew are occupying is not a distance that a man could reasonably be expected to jump without at least uh, several months' preparation. Blah, blah, blah. She rudely speaks over me halfway through my explanation. I ain't interested. Let's just shoot this and get on to the next scene. Ah, yes. The next scene. I am anxious to get to that. That's the scene where I have rescued her and so get to embrace her in my arms and plant a loving kiss on her lips. I am very much looking forward to that. Personality aside, she is quite the finest woman I have ever met. But there is still this jump. Uh, excuse me? A, a little man with glasses appears beside me on the rooftop. I am from the Contracts Division of Monumental Pictures, and I feel it is my obligation to remind you that when you first applied to work with the aforementioned illustrious and benevolent film company, you did tell us that you had... He pauses and takes a sheet of paper from his pocket. Peering through his glasses, he reads it slowly. A lengthy experience in England of theatrical stunt work, including spells with Her Majesty's uh, Trapeze Regiment, the Kensington Rodeo, and the Finchley Canyon Jumpers. <laughs> his eyes look back up at me. Oh, my hat. I mean, everyone embellishes their applications somewhat with a few fictional occupations. It hardly seems fair to expect one to live up to the letter with everything on there. This respectable, respectable character continues yabbering on, and I find myself hating this baboon more with every word he utters. Therefore, should you refuse to shoot a scene that falls within the parameters of that which would, could reasonably be expected from a person with experiences of stunt work, you will immediately be found to be in breach of contract with the Blessed Monumental Picture. Yes! Yes! I snap. <sighs> Having heard enough, I'll do the dashed jump. I am glad we have arrived at a mutually beneficial understanding of the situation. He oozes before slinking back to whatever grimy little office you come from. I close my eyes and focus. Maybe this is one of those moments when a man is suddenly taken with thoughts of his own fragile mortality. That a man must take risks in life, for is a life truly worth living if one lives it without risk? Is it not when one stares death in the face that he truly learns what it is to be alive? This idea that had always seemed a bucket load of fatuous old taps to me previously <laughs> now seems incredibly wise. Now would be a good time to consider why that might... Will you just jump already? The leading lady screams impatiently. Maybe now isn't the time. If this is my moment of laughing in the face of death, then I'd best get it over with so I can relax with the G&T later. So I start running. Powerful strides across the rooftop. Nothing can stop me now as I gaze at the opposite root side. My goal so clearly in reach any second now. Wait! Wait! 
wait! The director yells, and I screech to a halt at the very edge of the rooftop. We're not filming! You need to do it when the cameras are running! I steady myself so close to the edge now I can look down. I can see quite how far it is to fall. I spy the camera crew on the ground, hoping to catch an all-encompassing shot of the hero's death-defying feet. They look tiny. Not quite as small as ants, but definitely the size of weasels. I feel my legs begin to wobble. The ground far below seems as if it had been pretty much designed to be as tough as possible, just for anyone foolish enough to go squishing into it. I hear the director again. Okay, buddy. We're ready now. Cameras are all set to go. Just do what you were about to do. I... I struggle to find the words to explain why I wasn't going to risk anything going wrong. I spot the director whispering something to the leading lady. Her expression seems to change... She tosses her cigarette end at a passing lackey and walks towards her rooftop edge. You know, she smiles, I really think you were going to do it that time. Her voice seems to have shifted several runs up the social ladder since last we spoke. (laughs) Suddenly I find myself respecting her opinion more. (laughs) You really are an amazingly well-built actor. Probably the best I have ever worked with. I acknowledge her words with a flirty, successful grin and a charming thank you. I bow cautiously, nearly sending myself over the edge in the process. All the girls in the studio are already talking about you, she purrs. If they learn you were the first actor to make the big jump well, they'll do more than talking, if you know what I mean. She winks coyly. I, f- I feel my legs wobble slightly again and quickly step back from the edge. I know exactly what you mean. I wink back, not entirely sure what she was talking about, but it did sound exciting. She spies my wink and blows me a kiss. I feign catching her kiss and then perform an amusing little slapstick routine of mine based around nearly dropping the kiss and having it tumbling through my fingers before I finally grab it and with a happy sigh hold it dearly to my heart. Then romantically, I blow her the kiss back. (laughs) Which she misses entirely due to lighting herself another gasp. (laughs) Ready whenever you are, the director is shouting again. Righto, I shout back. Getting to my splatting point. Lights! I limber out. Shaking out my limbs in preparation, I feel re-energised now like a perky gazelle. <laughs> Camera! I mentally prepare myself. This is it. My jump into stardom. After this feat, after this film, I'll no longer be just a contract player. This will make me a household name. Years from now, all lovers of cinema will mention in awe the long and admired career of the great Bartholomew F. Carmichael. Action! 
And with that, I leap into the future. Thank you, David. And that brings our evening to a close. If you don't need to make an emergency exit, do stick around. We'll be here until the ambulances arrive. (laughs) And now, unless you've recently fallen into a cactus plantation or superglued your hands together, please give a round of applause to all of our authors and actors. Good night. (laughs) 